Insight Podcast. I don't know about you, Louise, but I'm feeling pretty frazzled right now. I've escaped homeschooling for a few moments to record this. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm doing okay. Uh, my my homeschoolie uh, turned 18 over Christmas, so it's proven a little difficult to pin him down at this point. And I don't have any authority anymore, so try that one out. <laughs> don't know whether to be jealous of you or sorry for you, but... <laughs> Anyway, can you sense I'm trying to drag this out? <laughs> so anyway, we have a great episode lined up yet again. Um, we'll be talking to Suzanne Little and Paul Bootlar uh, later on about Research Challenge 4, which is the multimodal data analysis um, strand. We're also going to be talking to our very own Donico Driscoll up in UCD, who has been doing some really interesting work on the moon. But first, we spoke to Dr. Aoife Morin at the beginning of the second lockdown, and it was a particularly relevant conversation because her work has to do with air quality. We started off by asking her to explain it. Every researcher in in Europe and in the world is looking at COVID and considering how or, or how it impacts their own research. And I guess it's no no different for ourselves. So we've been looking at indoor air quality and the design of sensors that can help with the personalized monitoring of indoor air quality for a couple of years now. And this has been a nice project where we've been deploying color-based sensors in lots of different homes through throughout Ireland and also across Europe to understand what kind of emissions happen in the home when you're cooking or cleaning or different human-based activities like this. So in lockdown, when lockdown happened in March, we had a couple of sensors deployed in a couple of different households. And of course, what happened in lockdown is that we all stayed home and it wasn't terribly warm at the time. We kept our windows closed and um, we were living in in our houses. So what happened was that we saw these unusual responses that we didn't initially understand on our sensors. And really all the sensors were doing was telling us that just by virtue of being home more, we've got a decrease in the air quality in our homes. So we looked at this and we then uh, hooked up with another air quality company new wave sensors and they had some data from their own particulate matter and voc volatile organic compound uh, sensors that they were deploying in houses so we asked them for their data if they could if we could access it and we saw the same trend both for their sensors in the same way that we saw for our sensors where 12th of march or whatever date it was very very distinctly there was this covid effect in the data um, really arising from people just staying at home more. Uh, so we were we talked about this and realized that there's a really important message here that you know ventilation in homes is really really critical and for never more important when we're spending more time at home. So the statistics around this are that outside of lockdown we spend human beings spend about ninety percent of their time indoors. So we spent a lot of time, a lot of research looking at outdoor air quality, and this is really important, and there's a correlation between outdoor air quality and indoor air quality. But there's specific activities indoors that we do that also contribute to the air quality that we have in our own homes. And we really need to, to create an awareness of, of this and what the effects can possibly be because we're spending such an amount of time 
indoors and with COVID I think everybody was cleaning more everybody was cooking more um, and these kind of activities are the activities the high risk activities that that we have in the house that, that we see as as high risk in terms of emission production. And of course, everybody was cleaning a lot more. So and we've seen that shares have gone up in all the cleaning companies I was hearing there yesterday. So, yeah, that, that that's obviously going to affect the, the air quality. And, and, you know, I know it's not part of your research, but in terms of people's reaction to, to poor air quality in the house, we're talking about triggering asthma and those sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, so if you think about the cleaning products that we have in our house, so bleach and other types of cleaners, I mean, for us to use them in a chemistry lab, we'd have to seek approval for them and understand the risks involved, be very clear on any hazards that are linked with those uh, chemical reagents, essentially. Um, whereas we just have them to hand in our house and we have to, we need to consider them as hazardous chemicals. And, you know, there's one thing about using them, um, always make sure obviously the windows are open, but mixing these chemicals is a whole other ball game in terms of uh, the hazards that are present from mixing any two reagents that you aren't aware of what the consequences are. So we need to we need to handle these carefully and be very aware. I think we need to use what we've learned in lockdown and the data that we saw to create. We have an onus to create an awareness of the hazards of indoor air pollution and the importance of ventilation and so on. I'm not I'm certainly not saying not to clean or not to cook. That's not the message that we want to get out. We're just saying that if, if you do that, doesn't matter what the season is, the house has to be well, well ventilated. Is it just a case of, um, you know, cracking a window, opening a door, Aoife, or are there other measures that people can take? That's the simplest message, to be honest, to keep to open the windows, open the doors. The, and the other thing that I just mentioned before is not to be mixing chemicals because, again, they're going to produce, no, they potentially can produce noxious gases that really we shouldn't be exposing ourselves to in, in our own homes and certainly not on prolonged bases. So I think keeping the, keeping the windows open, that's, that's really the key message that we want to get across. And this research, it ties very well in with your, your broader research mission, which is to look at these volatile co- compounds and, and how they interact with one another in ways that perhaps aren't that well understood yet. Is that right? Yes, I guess my background is that I'm an analytical chemist and, you know, I've always been interested in sensor technologies uh, for understanding both the environment that we live in, but also understanding our health. Um, so the idea that we can make these sensor technologies more and more pervasive in society will just only serve to increase the resolution of the data that we have about our environment. Um, so this resonates then really well with insight and working with data scientists on these kind of problems is, is, is such a wonderful opportunity. Um, so coming back then the types of sensors that we're interested in developing are one type at least are around the gas around volatile organic compounds. So gases in the atmosphere, um, we want to be able to sample and capture and analyze so that we can understand a little bit more about the place that we sample those from. One place that we're interested in in take in sampling these gases from is from the skin actually and this is something that can give us great insights into our own health so the gases that are being emitted off the skin give us information that we look to align with with health status so that's looking into the body but there's also the the idea that we can look 
we can use the same type of technology so we can put sensors on the skin, not only just to look into the body, but also I think it's really relevant to be looking outside the body into the environment so that we can get a personalized awareness of the exposures that we're, we're open to. And also the, our, the environment in which we operate will have a direct effect on our health also. So I think everything is inextricably linked, but designing interfaces that can sit on the skin to collect information either inside or out is, is really, really interesting and a difficult challenge. So we're heading into lockdown and it's winter. So are you expecting it to see some off the charts activity from your sensors in the next few weeks? Yeah, so it's an it's an interesting time for lockdown and it's got, you know, I think it's going to be a much more difficult lockdown for all the reasons weather being key for for many many people because it's just more difficult to be uh, to be outside and to have the windows open and to be getting fresh air look the fresh air is needed for mental health as well as physical health so i think we just have to always be remembering that message even in the even on the darkest coldest days that Getting outside is good for us. Um, opening our windows, getting fresh air is what we need. And it's, it's what's going to get us through this lockdown. Not sitting inside all day, for sure, with the windows closed. Can't do, do us any good at all. <laughs> That's great. Listen, thanks very much. I'm off to open the window. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk to Donica O'Driscoll now, who has been really playing a blinder all through the lockdown. He's been helping people out with moving desks and setting up offices, but he's also been spending a lot of time moon gazing. We believe that uh, you have gained a new moniker, which is sort of hero of insight, man in a van and so yes. on. Have you been getting on? <laughs> Grand. I, I, I suppose we have concerns about being able to function, you know, as a research centre. But I, I think our, our primary concern at the moment is our people. Because I think if you look after the crew, they'll get on with things. So it, I, I kind of see myself as ensuring that as best as possible, people are, are, are getting on as best they can. Uh, there's very, it's limited what I can do. But we have been, for instance, giving out uh, desks and chairs that are more, you know, that, that they help a workspace. And there's everything from trying to keep people engaged, to check how they are and things like that. We'll make it up as we go along. I see. Now, we could talk to you about many, many topics because you're a man who has many interests, but you, you have a sideline in kind of public engagement and science and yeah. myth-busting and that kind of thing. Can you yeah. tell us a bit about yeah. that? Okay, well, uh, I've always been passionate about science. I'm, I'm a great believer in the principle of science and the methodology and the approach of science and, you know, and to recognise science for what it is and what it isn't. And I, I believe that through, you know, the principle of science and the, you know, the, the steady step by step approach that it takes, the self-checking, the self-doubt, which is very much part of it, has brought us, you know, huge benefits over the years. I mean, yes, people will point to, you know, how technology may be destroying aspects of life, but that's more application of science. Uh, but science itself is, uh, it's, it's a great way of trying to elucidate truth. It's not the answer to all things in life, but we haven't come up with a better system of, you know, trying to understand life around us and come to terms with it. But um, unfortunately, part of the process is it doesn't come in an app. 
there's some fundamentals which the modern world doesn't, uh, we'll say, assist us in making faster or easier. And one of the things is pure learning. You know, it just you, you have to invest a bit of time in reading up and in checking. And even though one can kind of do the idiot guides of, you know, get the headlines, get the bits and pieces, you have to dive a little bit deeper in order to stand on solid ground because what's happening more and more is we have uh, spin doctors of truth people who are actually adept at spinning narratives around half facts which appear quite convincing the trouble is is that unless you've actually given yourself some bit of a solid platform you, you fall victim to it and, and i'm not trying to be condescending to people who you know you know you're too silly you're falling fall to these things but you really do and we're not calling it out enough. And unfortunately, I have to say that I think as scientists, we have fallen asleep at the wheel a little bit. I think that for a long time, there was this kind of general respect for academia and for facts. And, you know, kind of this this thing of, well, you know, these people have invested time and, uh, and energy and we've got to respect what they say. That's we row that tide too long. And now what has happened is that it's kind of a free for all. Expertise is now the person who shouts the loudest or the most convincing, not the person who has the facts or the, the experience or the knowledge. It's the person who can sound most convincing. And science has never been fantastic at sounding convincing. And so we probably need to engage a bit more. That I chip away a small little bit. I mean, it's a very small level with my site at themoon.ie. I mean, it's a very focused, very small, specific thing. But the great thing about science is that even if you're only interested in one particular small area and you're talking about one small area, you're actually teaching about the whole area of science. The principle of science and how you approach any area is the same as the principle in anything else. I try and show that there's, you know, there's knowledge, there's facts, there's good things, there's bad things. And you can apply that then to anything else. So, you know, the methodology can be applied to anything. My platform just happens to be the moon, which is my passion, astronomy and things like that. So I find that if you have a passion about something, you then tend to make it a bit more interesting. You know, the way sometimes when you're listening to someone talk about something and even though you might be interested in the topic itself, you're kind of enjoying the person's passion about it, you know, and they, you kind of see this is something that things we're talking. So that's kind of my, my general aim at it. Now, the, the site itself. So I make little videos and I make um, I try and uh, engage and I'm a total amateur at this. I never want anyone to listen to this. That I, I have some expertise. But in my uh, attempts at trying to engage with people to grab a few seconds or minutes of their time, just to give them a little piece of, of knowledge. And that's that's the challenge. Do you think that on that, that there's, we learn, we, we, we have a science subject in school. And then it breaks up and whatever else. And that's all about, you know, um, learning the fundamentals of um, science. Do you think that there should be space in that made for science literacy in terms of the, the whole idea that in science, nothing is certain. And that is part of what is so hard in the fight against the misinformation, because Absolutely. it's a it's a process. It, it is. And in fact, you hit on something there, because first of all, um, people usually don't really learn that 
until they go into if they do go into postgraduate, even an undergraduate. It's it's and uh, one of the things I sometimes say to people is that science is not a noun. When people think of science, they think of, you know, the uh, theory of gravity, the theory of evolution, the you know, this fact and that fact. And it's kind of the joint collection. Science is a verb. It's an activity. And these uh, and in science class, we talk about our science lectures or whatever it is. We talk about gravity or electricity or evolution and stuff purely as examples of how you learn the activity of science. And uh, a lot of people don't actually click to that because they kind of get taken up with learning the facts and learning, you know, the products. It's a bit like if you were doing photography. And, you know, the, the lecturer will come in and show you good photographs and they'll show you, you know, how light balance and color and all these sorts of things. But he's showing you that purely to make the technique make sense. So when they talk about exposure and, you know, your stop gaps and things like that, so that that actually makes sense, they'll show you the result of the photograph. But sometimes people get taken up with the photographs so they learn, you know, that photography is a collection of photographs. It's not. It's a, it's a methodology. And science is the same. And actually, um, not going off too adrift, but like, for instance, when then someone says, but uh, let's say creationism, creationism is a theory. It's something. And if science was open, they should maybe introduce this into the classroom if they're being open and honest. But if you tell them that, no, the reason why we have any of these examples in science class is to teach you the methodology of science, because creationism wasn't established through science. It's not looked at through a science lens and it won't develop through science. It's no disrespect to creationism in of itself. If um, in a photography class, as I used, if someone came in with an oil painting and they say, look, we're discussing pictures, we're looking at pictures. And the lecturer said, no, we're not going to that because that oil painting wasn't created through photography. And if the person said, what have you got against oil paintings? He says, I don't. I love painting. I do it. But the thing is, we're here to learn about the methodology of photography. This picture wasn't created. So there's nothing to learn about photography. No disrespect to the oil painting. And the thing is, we haven't got that message across, even to students. I mean, I know of science undergrad students, even some uh, postgrads, and they still haven't twigged to what, you know, what science is and, you know, almost the philosophy of science in in a certain respect and i think without that kind of firm basis uh we're adrift okay and can you tell us donica if somebody's to go to the moon.ie what would they find there what what kinds of updates are you are you putting up on the site okay so after all that high-minded talk (laughs) you're expecting to you know something deep and philosophical it's not at all so what i do is uh the moon is a perfect uh platform to engage people Because, first of all, it's something everyone can see and look up at. Astronomy in general is one of the the last remaining sciences that the amateur can actually take part in. The amateur astronomer still plays an active part in the development of, you know, because observations and things like that. So the moon is there. Everyone can recognize with the moon. I mean, culturally, the moon is very much part of our lives, both from, you know, movies, romance and things like that. But the science, also the Apollo program man going to the moon and this sense of thing. So there's an engagement with the moon to start with. So I think 
even people who aren't that interested in science are kind of interested in the sky and astronomy and you know there's a kind of a general interest there so there's a hook there so when they go on what i try and do is i try and encourage people to look at the moon and just if people could even understand the phases of the moon so my basic science point for the beginners is just understand why the moon looks different each night. So I've done little videos, my little 60 second videos and try to explain and I update it each month to say when you'll see the things. That's a very fundamental thing. But you'd be quite aghast at the number of people, even people who, you know, are in the scientific sphere who don't quite fully understand <laughs> the movements of the moon and, you know, uh, solar eclipses and lunar eclipses. And I think it's it's a great thing because it's quite physical. It's actually quite simple in nature to to explain. And there's a real kind of a eureka moment in people's minds when they say, "Oh yeah, that does make sense." You don't have to get complex. You don't you don't have any prior knowledge. I and mean, if you just understand the concepts of bodies moving and shadows, you can you know you, you can give a lot of information. And it's stuff that they can go out and double check and say, "Yeah, actually, that's right." And you know. Uh, so they're the kind of simple things. I have a video there, like, why is the sky blue? Again, it's a very simple concept. And I think um, people maybe underestimate or kind of feel that, well, you know, unless you've read a few books in science, there's a lot of scientific principles you just not understand. And like people do get a kick out of the fact of, oh, yeah, that's yeah, I understand that. Actually, that makes perfect sense. Yes, that makes sense. Now, in the next of our series on the research challenges, we're going to talk to Suzanne Little in Insight at DCU and Paul Bootlar in Insight at NUI Galway about research challenge four. To start, we asked Suzanne to explain what multimodal data analysis is. So multimodal data analysis is really the bringing together of the, the variety of data that we tend to work with here at, at Insight. So that's everything from traditional numerical data that comes from sensors through to text and natural language processing, all the way up to things like video, images, uh, 3D, and also the way that we interact with this type of information, this type of data. Within Insight, we have people that do all sorts of analytics work on, on these different types of data. And by coming together to work on this from a multimodal approach, so bringing together multiple um, methods and multiple modes of working on this data, we're able to help each other um, find new ways of understanding this information. And what do you hope to achieve in Insight with this research challenge? I know that's a very big question, but I'm going to direct that at you, Paul. Well, I... I guess a couple of directions. So first of all, we want to advance the state of the art in multimodal data analysis. So there has been quite some progress around the world in this area, but there's still many challenges to to integrate this, this big variety of different kinds of data that, that Suzanne was talking about. So uh, there has been progress in uh, connecting text um, analysis to image analysis. There has been some uh, success in connecting text analysis and video analysis, so automatic captioning of videos, for instance. But the whole area of, of sensors and that kind of numerical data, connecting that with text analysis, image analysis, video analysis, all of that is still a, a big a big challenge and a, a lot of work uh, to be done, and, and we hope to advance the state of the art there. We're also looking at applications, so more and more uh, this kind of data is actually 
uh, around us. It's in society, in enterprise, um, in health settings. So we we want to apply these these new methods and, and solutions to these kind of applications. And what does it look like when you bring together two streams of data, say, for example, the data that's captured via sensor and the data that's captured via perhaps a camera? Could you give us a, an example of an application there? Yeah, so when you when you bring together two different sources of data, um, there, there are a couple of uh, challenges in doing this from a, from a technical and a research perspective, but there are a lot of advantages that you gain from the sort of problems you can solve. So an example of um, some of the work we've done previously in things like instrumented locations, so within the, the smart cities or the smart stadium projects that we've done in the past at Insight, where you've got um, an activity or an action happening, you might be able to use things like CCTV footage, which gives you just the visual channel, and you can start to look at uh, patterns about how people move around or, or certain activities or actions they're taking. If you're able to synchronize that with things like sensor data, so maybe you've got GPS trackers on players or you've got uh, Fitbits that are giving you activity um, and, and motion information. If you can bring all that together, you're able to produce systems that are much more um, reliable, that tend to be more accurate about the work they can do, that have a much bigger scale and scope. So you're looking at um, being able to recognize activities on kind of a, a crowd level rather than, than only on an individual. And you're able to um, recognize probably more complicated actions and activities than would be possible if you used only one mode. Paul, so this research challenge sounds to me like it's a very good example of the kind of work that really would demand a lot of cooperation across the sites and centres and everybody feeding in across Insight. Have, has that been the case so far or is that what's mapped? Yeah, that, that is definitely starting to happen, the collaboration across the sites because we we have strong um, expertise in, in different areas in the different sites actually. So DCU in, in Dublin historically have been very strong in image analysis, video analysis and these kind of areas. And then uh, here in Galway, we have been stronger in natural language processing, so in text analysis. And that fits very well together. And um, actually, interestingly, a lot of the, the current state-of-the-art methods actually bring this very much together. So we all work with neural network approaches now, where things are really uh, together into into a, a vector mathematical representation of the data. And, and then... It, it almost all becomes the same, but there's still different challenges, of course. So we need to bring that together and just different data types, different things to recognize, to interpret, um, to integrate. So that collaboration uh, already uh, started. So Suzanne and myself are co-supervising uh, co a student uh, around meme classification. So. Um, the task is to automatically identify if a meme is offensive or not, which is in the current uh, in current society quite a, a big issue uh, with all the social media content that comes through. And we need to, to have methods, uh, automatic scalable methods to to organize that better and to to identify if they're offensive or not. So that that's um, that's an interesting collaboration. Um, so there are more connections that can be made, and we're working on that. Uh, sensors is something that have been that has been developed across the different sites. So that that is also something where collaboration uh, is is very much possible. So all the sites have been working on smart city applications, for instance, as was discussed already. How have you found 
the willingness on the ground to kind of come together and collaborate, or has that presented a challenge? Well, I think it's it's uh, it's a learning experience. Uh, so people are indeed set in their own in their own culture and their their background. But in this area, there there is a growing realization. So people working on text analysis, natural language processing, and people working on image analysis, people working on sensors, they they come uh, they come across people from these other directions more and more because even in, in conferences people kind of start to cross over so especially in this area I think there is actually there's a lot of potential and and I would expect that that more collaborations will will happen therefore but it, it is true I mean there is there is the physical well I won't say barrier but but a physical issue and then there is the uh, the issue of culture but the physical one interestingly with the lockdown uh, if we can talk about that the current uh, situation actually makes that easier right so there is no expectation to to travel so it's much easier to go onto a video call and and have collaboration on that level so that that's interesting uh, hopefully that will not stay hopefully we'll all go back to to normal but it 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 showed us that there's actually yeah potential for organizing things in that way no excuses in other words yeah true <laughs> We've had some uh, technical issues during the recording of this, but I think Suzanne is back with us and I want to address this question to both of you. Um, Say at the end of the five, six years of Insight 2, in terms of your own research challenge, what do you think success will look like? That's a a great question. Um, So we're talking about the end of Insight 2, which is what, about 2025, I think, um, is is the the projected date. And that's that's astounding because that's that's five years away. So five five years ago in my field, which is in video analytics and computer vision, things things have changed incredibly in that time. So the advent of, of things like deep learning, of, of the use of, of GPUs to be able to really have a, a huge increase in our ability to accurately analyze and recognize um, input. So I think. My, my hope would be that in five years' time, some of the opportunities that, that Paul has outlined that, that come from this collaboration are going to give us a very unique opportunity to improve the performance and the reliability of the fundamental tools that we use. And we've seen this already where techniques that have, have proven to be very successful in things like natural language processing or translation have been... Um, co-opted by video analytics and by multimodal analytics um, they've been expanded and made more powerful and then they're able to do you know different types of recognition more effectively and more efficiently than we could do previously so obviously on one hand as, as academics we're driven by improving performance but I think a successful outcome for us is going to be that that sharing of, of knowledge so the the example that Paul has, has given of the super the co-supervision of a, of a student, um, I'm able to bring to that my understanding and knowledge of multimedia semantics and the consequences that are that are part of that. And Paul's team brings his expertise in natural language processing. So I think examples like that are going to prove to be the the kind of the most successful outcome that we can we can aim for uh, from from the opportunities that we have with this collaboration. Thank you for joining us for episode seven of the Inside Podcast. It's going to be even more fun next week for episode eight. Tune in, like us, follow us, all that jazz. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye.
This has been a Snoring Dog production on behalf of the Insight SFI Research Centre for Data Analytics.